Take a network break. Greg Farrow's away, so I'm happy to welcome Jonna Till Johnson as my co-host today. Jonna is CEO and founder of Nemertes Research and also co-host with Greg on the Heavy Strategy Podcast on the Pack of Pushers Network, so we're excited to have her as a guest today. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of stories today, but first a little business before we get going. Uh, mark your calendar for Capacities Connected Enterprise Event in Chicago starting November 7th. This live event is a platform for CIOs, CISOs, CTOs, and IT managers to learn from each other and make sure they can manage their networks and deliver enterprise connectivity in an age of remote work, cloud adoption, cyber threats, and sustainability. You can register at events.capacitymedia.com slash IRNV1N, or just look for this event at events.capacitymedia.com. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about SD-WAN and healthcare markets. We're going to talk specifically about meeting requirements for security and performance, which can be a particular challenge for smaller clinics and remote locations offering healthcare services outside of a central hospital or medical campus. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, Amazon is investing as much as $4 billion into Anthropic. This is an AI company that licenses a virtual assistant called Claude and develops large-scale AI systems. Amazon will also be a minority owner of Anthropic. As part of the deal, AWS becomes uh, Anthropic's primary cloud provider, and Anthropic will use AWS custom chips to chain its models. Uh, Anthropic and Amazon are also partnering on the AWS Bedrock service, which customers can use to build generative AI tools using third-party models, including Anthropic's, that can then be Customize using the customer's own data sets. Uh, Johnny, your take. Uh, well, Drew, first and foremost, I'm just super happy that Anthropics is calling its agent Claude, which is a male name, because someone recently pointed out to me that all of these AIs have female names, which is basically bringing a whole new generation up in the notion of women as robotic nags. So I'm super happy to see <laughs> see, see that the, uh, the, the con- that that's getting spread across genders. But more right. seriously... I think this is actually super interesting because we recently conducted a research study on enterprise AI and we found that um, Amazon is trailing badly in third place across all the companies we spoke with uh-huh. uh, after Microsoft and Google. They only have about 16 percent of companies say that they use Bedrock at the moment. Uh-huh. Interestingly, financial services firms are most likely to be using Amazon Bedrock. 60 percent of them say they're using Amazon Bedrock. So I think this is a great move by Amazon to bolster its standing in enterprise AI. And I think particularly if you're a a tech person at a financial firm, this news is going to be quite relevant to you. I mean, it's clearly an extension of the premise of public cloud to offer a service. uh, And in this case, it's to build and train generative AI applications for customers that don't want to build and run their own infrastructure. But uh, particularly, I'm surprised actually to hear financial services. I would assume that they would want to have this kind of thing uh, on-prem where they can control it for security reasons and also tune it um, to their specifications as opposed to using cloud service. Well, in the case of financial services, it's not really an either or, it's a both and. Mm. I know most of our financial services firms actually do have entirely on-prem solutions, but for certain applications, it's okay to be using uh, cloud more broadly, somewhat frighteningly. The enterprise folks that we work with tend to almost universally go towards a cloud model simply because cloud is great for R&D applications. They're they're kicking the tires. They're Uh playing around. That's all well and good. But what they don't realize is and what you're alluding to is they're feeding the beast while they do that, because most companies do not have in place. Seventy percent of companies do not have in place a digital ethics policy to control what data is actually handed to these engines. So it's a little bit scary right now that people don't realize the risks that they're running as they're kicking the tires and playing around with cloud based enterprise AI. 
So you mean that potentially sensitive information could inadvertently get exposed if they're just popping their data into the public cloud and letting models run on it and who knows what the public cloud provider might be doing with that data as well? Exactly. Exactly. It's it's exfiltration is the top concern and roadblock for enterprise AI, and yet people are running around using cloud-based AI that enables exfiltration. So, yeah. Okay. So definitely something to consider. I was just thinking about it in terms of the cost. We all know that uh, AWS is kind of like the uh, Hotel California. It's easy to get your data up there, but then when you need to move it or uh, take it out, that's when they hit you. So... Honestly, I don't think that's a big issue because the the great thing about cloud is you can c- control the cost yourself. You can simply stop using the service. The real issue is to, you know, if you have to start setting up an internal data center, and I know we'll get to this later on in the show, but if you have to set up an internal data center and uh, manage that data center for your AI and compute intensive applications, mm-hmm. that can be super expensive. So I don't think it's really a cost issue right now. It's really a sick issue. Okay, good to know. All right, links in the show notes. We'll move on. Uh, Chipmaker Marvell has responded to an accusation that it provided a backdoor to the U.S. National Security Agency, or NSA. In a statement, Marvell wrote that it never, quote, knowingly incorporated or retained any vulnerability or backdoor, end quote. Uh, This accusation appears as a footnote in a PhD thesis written by Jason Applebaum. He's a security researcher who had access to NSA documents from whistleblower Edward Snowden. Uh, It appears that Applebaum is referring to Cavium support of a random number generator algorithm, which is dual EC DRBG. This is a NIST standard that is now widely regarded as exploitable by the NSA. Uh, Marvell acquired Cavium in 2018, which is why we're talking about Marvell and Cavium. Uh, in a statement, Marvell acknowledges that prior to 2014, some of its software libraries did include dual EC DRBG, but once media reports came out uh, in 2013 and 2014 saying that the algorithm was compromised, it, quote, removed this algorithm from its software libraries and has not included it in any product shipped since then, end quote. You know, I, I kind of look at this and I think this is just another case of security gotcha, which is a fun game to play, but it's really meaningless in terms of you know, real security vulnerabilities. On this one, I got to side with Marvell. They're right. First of all, random number generating algorithms are absolutely security flaws, security vulnerabilities. I remember way back in the early 90s when the, the earliest um, web browser actually used a random number generating algorithm that wasn't random at all because it used it was it was the core of a Monte Carlo simulation. So it's statistically random, but it produces the same sequence every single time you start it, which Mm. is a known problem with random number generating algorithms. Long story about that. I I know way too much about this stuff from my background (laughs) in particle physics. But anyway, circling back to this, it's a it's a known problem. It's an oops. Marvell sounds like they did exactly the right thing. They have plausible deniability based on the fact that, you know, it's in a standard and, you know, hey, look, a lot of my friends have PhDs. I dropped out of a PhD program, but I know how the game is played. You really want to find interesting novel things that nobody else saw before. No, no offense to Dr. Applebaum. I hope it's now Dr. Applebaum, but he's just kind of playing gotcha. And I'm siding with Marvell on this one. Okay, uh, I also feel like um, because this was a NIST standard, uh, Marvell slash Cavium and other vendors do have plausible deniability. I, they were just following government standards and maybe didn't know at the time that the NSA had compromised that particular algorithm. I guess I'm also not necessarily 
willing to trust tech companies on their word because we don't know what happens behind the scenes uh, with big governments and tech vendors. Um, and there is a continual tension between governments and tech vendors over encryption. Uh, there's just been a lot of kerfuffle in the UK about an online safety bill uh, that just got passed. It could require companies to scan encrypted messages if there's concerns that a platform is being used for child abuse. That's just one example of this constant tension between we need to protect uh, privacy versus we need to be able to do things for law enforcement or public safety or national security, et cetera. I completely agree. And, and gotten to the point now where anytime anybody trots out child pornography, I'm like, oh, here it comes again. Right. We, you know, we have to we have the right to go the children. do things. Right. Because the children and because it's, you know, it's a lose lose proposition like, oh, you don't want us to invade your privacy. Oh, you must support child pornography. No and no. OK, right. we can we can somehow combine these two values, both of which are extremely good. No child pornography and no privacy invasion. But nonetheless, this just because I do have some expertise in this area, random number generators are kind of a classical flaw, known flaw. It's really hard to eradicate every single one from all of your code libraries. And, you know, that stems from back in the day when you wanted to to simulate things. Again, I mentioned it was a Monte Carlo simulation that you, you use. Basically, you just want to sort of spray uh, data in a particular random, statistically random form, but it won't necessarily be random in the sense of unpredictable where you don't know which number is next. So, it's a classic kind of gotcha. That doesn't mean that Marvel is 100% trustworthy or Apple or Google or anybody else's. It just means, eh, come on, not this one. Let's not get excited about this one. Okay. Yeah, I think tech companies generally tend to say in public that they support encryption. And I think that's good to say. It's hard to know what happens behind closed doors. I, I'm not an expert in cryptography, but I do think it's pretty clear that you cannot safely build in a backdoor that only one government or licensed person could use. Those kind of things uh, tend to leak out. And so um, this notion that we should be able to have a backdoor for things like public safety, protecting children and so on just isn't a good argument. And it hasn't been a good argument since Kalia in the 1990s, and we lost that fight. But anyway... Right. All right. Lots of links in the show notes. If you want to look it up for yourself, we'll move on. Uh, Cisco has announced it's paying $28 billion to buy Splunk. I know Greg covered this last week, but uh, now that John or I got a chance to weigh in, so we're going to give our takes. Uh, and just to summarize, Cisco's paying $157 a share to buy Splunk. Splunk offers observability and security capabilities based off the data it collects, including logs, metrics, traces, and events. I think Splunk originally came to market as a log collector. It's since expanded into observability and security. It's got things like uh, security information and event management and SOAR capabilities, and also positions itself as an infrastructure monitoring and application performance monitoring platform. So, Johnny, you you, you wanted to make sure we, we put this in, even though we uh, got covered last week. So what, what, what are you uh, champing at the bit to talk about? Well, I think this is really interesting on basically two fronts. The biggest front that's most important is it's a huge marker indicator for the emergence of NetSecOps as a thing, which is essentially the convergence of NetOps and SecOps together. Um, this is Great news for us because we happen to be conducting a research study on exactly that topic. And by the way, if you're an enterprise IT person and want to participate, please hit up our site, nemertes.com, and fill out the form and let us know. And we'd love to have your insight in this study. But coming back to this, I think the, the bigger issue is we started doing this study because our clients were asking us questions like, what's the best practices for integrating NetOps and SecOps? Uh -huh. And we wanted to capture that. This acquisition really highlights that. The second point I want to make is, quite frankly, and I'm going to say something that's probably not exactly going to make me most favored analyst this week. <laughs> um, if you're a Splunk customer or a Cisco customer, please be aware that both companies have extremely high margins and high prices and high lock-in. 
And this is not good news for you. Uh, as one of the analysts that I was scanning said pithily, monocultures are always bad. So if you were thinking about leaving the Splunk stockade or the Cisco stockade and this just happened, now is an excellent time to revisit this. Uh, I'm not going to go out so far as to say that these are bad technologies because they aren't. Everybody knows they're, they're sort of table stakes technologies for most folks. Almost everybody uses Cisco routers. Almost everybody uses Splunk. But let me just put it this way. There are alternatives out there. And if you want to go investigate them, now is an excellent time because monocultures are bad. Yeah, that's exactly one of the points I wanted to raise. By all accounts that I've heard from users, Splunk is expensive and sticky, meaning sort of once it's in, it's not going anywhere. And expensive and sticky very much aligns with how Cisco likes to do things. So I'm not surprised to see this acquisition from that perspective. I think there's definitely overlap with other products in Cisco's portfolio. I'm thinking of AppDynamics primarily, but also that's never bothered Cisco before. They're happy to have multiple products uh, in in a single category. Yeah. And honestly, I think Cisco is going to be smart enough with this particular acquisition to not screw it up. We've had cases in the past um, with the Viptelo acquisition, for example, where yeah. they actually did screw it up. They did. Um, but and Greg has chapter and verse on why that <laughs> happened. But I'm pretty sure they're not going to do it this time uh, because Splunk is so strong where it is. So that part I'm not super worried about, but I really don't think this is good news for enterprise technologists in any way, shape or form. The only people it's really good news for are people that were holding Splunk stock before the acquisition. <laughs> Congratulations, yes. Uh, the press release, of course, is festooned with AI and ML, um, and every tech vendor is hoping to get as much data as they can to build AI and ML solutions on top of it. Splunk, of course, is a vast resource of that data. Uh, whether Splunk slash Cisco can successfully mine it, I think, maybe remains to be seen, but it definitely aligns with this uh, new marketing hype around AI and ML. Any comment there? Honestly, I not really, to, you know, because I think... I think the whole notion of Cisco mining your mining your data is not great in the first place. Um, maybe they can do that. Uh, AI and ML have been so much a part of security, cybersecurity solutions for a decade that it's kind of old news. So I'm a little surprised that they're even talking about this, except maybe it's new news for Cisco. I don't know. <laughs> I think Cisco feels like it's behind uh, in AIML, uh, in particular markets. I'm thinking specifically of Juniper uh, in wired and wireless. And so um, being able to have a, I guess, feasible, if not necessarily, um, you know, proved out story around AI and ML in, in NetSecOps is, is good for them, uh, at least for the marketing department. And thank you for jumping on that NetSecOps thing, because I think that's the single biggest takeaway from all of this is NetSecOps is here. Full stop. Full end stop. of story. All right. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor today. Uh, Capacity's Connected Enterprise is a live event. It's launching on November 7th in Chicago. If you're a CIO, CISO, CTO, or network manager, or IT infrastructure, or operations, security, or procurement manager, the show is tailored to your interests. You can network with industry peers, learn and share insights on how to manage your network effectively, learn about new technologies and software, hear about other companies' successes and failures, and rub shoulders with the likes of WeWork, Zoom, and KBC Bank USA. With an enterprise-led agenda, Capacity's Connected Enterprise is packed with case studies, keynote presentations, panel discussions, and roundtable sessions on network architecture builds and designs, security and partnerships. 
Capacity's Connected Enterprise will answer essential questions. Is your company's IT strategy still relevant? Do you have the right architecture and design? Are your company's networks secure? And are you getting the most of your partnerships? So don't miss out on the chance to gain valuable insights, knowledge, and connections that can transform the future of your enterprise. Register for this live event at events.capacitymedia.com slash IRNV1N, or just look for this event at events.capacitymedia.com, or find the link in the show notes for episode 449. Right back to the news. Microsoft is looking to hire someone to lead the company's strategy around the use of small modular nuclear reactors and micro reactors to help power the company's global data centers. Uh, my understanding is that Microsoft is not looking to develop its own reactors, but to partner with utilities and electricity providers that are building small modular reactors. John, and now I'm glad to hear that uh, you have a physics background because maybe you can weigh in here. Well, and actually, I did do nuclear physics before. Actually, other way around, I was doing particle physics and switched to nuclear physics. So again, something I can talk to. Right. I, I will also say my dad was a, a submarine commander on nuclear power subs who then worked in the nuclear industry after he retired. So I have some passing familiarity with the industry. Honestly, I think this is a great move by Microsoft. It's a smart move by Microsoft. I know there are people that are going to, you know, environmentalists are probably going to scream bloody murder about this because they should be using, you know, quote unquote, renewable wind, solar, blah, blah, blah. Here's the fundamental problem. And Microsoft is facing it head on. Kudos to them. All of the new computing paradigms that are coming down the pike AI today, quantum computing tomorrow are incredibly energy intensive. Yep. About two years ago, AMD's CTO caused kind of a more than minor kerfluffle by publishing a chart that said essentially by 2030, AI is going to consume all available power on planet Earth if current trends hold. Uh -huh. Now, obviously, current trends aren't going to hold. You know, that's it's designed to be provocative, but people right. don't understand how huge the energy consumption is. As one of my colleagues likes to put it, it's like AI is having its Bitcoin moment. And, you know, sorry, environmentalists, if you're telling me that, you know, wind and solar is going to somehow pick up the slack, it's not. So Microsoft is doing the only intelligent thing at the moment, which is, OK, what form of what form of power is not fossil fuel can be used to support this incredible energy drain and can, you know, and has been tried and tested. So we know that it's going to work. So I think it's actually a super good move. And I'm sure they're going to get a lot of grief for it. But I think it's still the right thing to do. Now, I want to be clear that we're talking about small modular and micro reactors. And my yes. understanding is that these have a, a smaller physical footprint compared to sort of the conventional nuclear reactors you might see and are reportedly safer to operate. Uh, I, you're absolutely correct. Nuclear has a bad rep in the U.S. Um, but I think the hope is that there are that the features about SMRs may make them more palatable, particularly to you know, municipalities, municipalities and communities where these would have to be built uh, to support data centers and, and to support uh, power electricity companies. Yeah. And honestly, I think some of this is just more um, hype than reality. I'm not going to say that mo smaller plants aren't less dangerous. That's double negative. They are. But there's also, you know, they're trying to make it look look warm and cuddly. Honestly, right. <laughs> I'd love to see them deploy fusion in a few years. We're getting very, very close, but we're not there yet. So, uh, I'm sure Microsoft is keeping an eye on it, but they're they're kind of, you know, they have to fish or cut bait right now and they're doing what they need to be doing. So I think they're doing the most responsible thing that they could possibly do at the moment. Yeah. And several episodes ago, we did talk about a development project in the U.S. state of Virginia that's looking to build new data center facilities that will also be powered by uh, small modular reactors. And the idea is to partner up with a utility company in Virginia that already has uh, a nuclear power plant. And so uh, adding an SMR may be a little bit of an easier hurdle to get over when it's built in a location that's already running nuclear. Yeah. And for the record, I live about uh, four miles from a nuclear plant, um, which is why real estate doesn't cost very much where I live. <laughs> <laughs> 
right, getting back to the news, uh, the net neutrality debate is back. Uh, in late September, Federal Communications Commissioner uh, Chair Jessica Rosenworl proposed restoring net neutrality rules for broadband providers, including wired and mobile providers. These rules forbid broadband from blocking content, throttling speeds, or creating fee-based fast lanes that would prioritize some traffic over others. Uh, these rules were overturned in 2018 when a Republican-controlled FCC reclassified uh, broadband providers under the Communications Act, which effectively, effectively put them outside the jurisdiction of the SCC. Uh, now Democrats have a majority on the FCC, so they're proposing to re-reclassify broadband providers as an essential telecommunication service and reinstate net neutrality requirements. Color me decidedly mixed on this one. On okay. the one hand, I'm super happy the FCC is on top of this. Uh, really, they should be regulating Internet providers. In fact, they should be regulating cable providers. In fact, there should be a lot more regulation in general, given some certain things that have happened. But when it comes specifically to net neutrality, I've always found like found that it's it's chasing it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist uh, because the fundamental thesis here is that the AT&T's and the Comcast's and the you know T-Mobile's of the world are going to prioritize their own content over somebody else's. You know, guess what? Really, the content that everybody's after doesn't come from, you know, sorry, Pache, but it's not coming from AT&T, Comcast or Verizon. It's coming from the content providers. It's coming from Google. It's coming from Microsoft. It's coming from other people uh, because the, the Internet is peer to peer. So it, it's sort of like it always feels like the regulations that the FCC is trying to come up with are 20 years behind or in this case, 40 years behind the curve. And I was always skeptical of net neutrality way back in the day because one of the one of the problems is if you're an inner in an ISP backbone provider, you're suddenly stuck with a bunch of stupid rules that say you can't throttle traffic intelligently at choke points because, oh, my gosh, somebody might claim that you're going counter to regulation. And the issue is, you know, you have to actually throttle traffic intelligently. Think about, you know, think about freeways in California. You've got feeder roads into the freeways. You might have to put in a red light and let only two or three cars in. And if somebody says, well, you have to prove to us that you're being fair and mm -hmm. you're not holding back all the red cars mm -hmm. in favor of all the white cars. That's like, seriously, I have to now go look at the colors of cars that I'm letting in, <laughs> you know, so color me decidedly mixed. I think in general, we really need to be taking a thorough look at all of our communications infrastructure and making sure that we've got consistent rules around it. But the specific issue of net neutrality has always been overblown and solving, as my mother used to say, puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> Very good. I guess I'll push back a little bit. I think the FCC's initial concern was not that uh, content prioritization was happening. It was the potential for it to happen. And I think as we see um, media providers start to buy uh, service providers, the potential for that is actually quite significant. Um, so Potential, get, potential, 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 potential. Let's go solve a problem, problem that doesn't exist. And in the solving of it, throw monkey wrenches in the works because basically prioritizing content is something that ISPs have to do in order to make their networks work, full stop. So, you know, you can't sit there and say, oh, this guy wants to do a giant bulk file transfer in the middle of this video conference. You have to kind of say, hey, bulk file transfer, sit down and wait. Sure. Video conference finish, send the traffic. And now all of a sudden they have to prove that they're somehow doing that fairly by some random definition of fair. Right. Although I guess I would say the FCC would counter by saying they are going to try to put rules into and had rules in the original net neutrality requirements that understood that there would be some kind of traffic prioritization that had to go on. I guess maybe it was onerous for the service providers to try to prove that they were being fair. Um, so I take your point, but I still think 
it's a requirement that they could meet if they needed to. They can, but, you know, and again, I wasn't a huge fan of the original net neutrality, but I am glad of the macro. So I think the more significant issue here is that by being able to reclassify these service providers mm -hmm. uh, under the Communications Act now means that there is potential for more of the regulations that you might be interested, things around pricing, digital privacy, having to share last mile infrastructure, or things like telephone pole access with competitors. The FCC is saying, not saying that it's what's going to do, but it could do that with this re-reclassification of these service providers, which is why I think these service providers are going to fight this tooth and nail, not because of the net neutrality, because of what regulations could potentially come in down the line by this reclassification. Totally agree with you there, Drew. All right, then I guess we'll leave it. <laughs> uh, our last story for today, uh, Facebook's parent company Meta has confirmed that it uses public Facebook and Instagram posts to train its AI-driven virtual assistant. The company asserted that it did not use private posts or private chats. Uh, I guess this is not surprising, but I think it's just a reminder that uh, we and our content are literally the product on these platforms, uh, so something to keep in mind. Well, a couple things. First of all, um, this is something that I've been saying until I'm sick of hearing myself say it. But uh, for the past 15 years, it's like whether it's Google, Facebook, uh, the company formerly known as Twitter or any of the others, the business model is selling eyeballs to advertisers. Yes. Full, stop. Full stop. If you don't get that, then you're nuts. That said, I'm going to say Facebook actually does a fairly decent job with privacy. Um, I do not. I've never I've been on Facebook for a really long time. I've never experienced any of the complaints that other people talk about, like they're getting, you know, they're getting bogus news or they're getting inundated with news feeds. It's because I go in and curate my privacy settings every quarter or thereabouts. Mm. And believe it or not, um, Facebook has made it relatively easy to do that to the point where I actually say things like, do send me ads from this company because I kind of like them. Um, and so then as a result, the three companies that I've that I've whitelisted send me infinite ads. So I know everything about them and nothing about anyone else. So anyway, I, I got to say, you um, are probably like the 0.01% of Facebook users, which, uh, you know, that's your choice and good for you. But uh, <laughs> I think you are definitely honestly, an outlier. If somebody, if somebody gives you an settings. off switch, if somebody gives you an off switch and you're going to stand there and complain that the light's too bright, uh, whose fault is that? <laughs> sure. I that said, yes. I think what you're talking about here is a little bit different, which is, you know, hey, we're going to take anything you post publicly and use that for AI. And I I have to admit, I just this morning posted something to LinkedIn saying, hey, guys, to to LinkedIn, the people in LinkedIn, not public post on LinkedIn saying your stupid AI isn't working particularly well. Can we just go back to regular search because I couldn't <laughs> find the thing I was looking for? So, you know, all I can say to Facebook is God bless you. I hope I hope you're not making your your everything you're doing worse by adding AI because it's not clear that it's going to be made better. Well, here's the issue I guess I have. I'm usually a privacy alarmist, which listeners will know uh, when it comes to social media. But given what I see on Facebook, I, I got to wonder about the garbage in, garbage out problem with having an AI chatbot trained on public posts. Like there's just a lot of crap on these platforms. And what are they doing to make sure that, you know, the information being spit back to you from this generative AI tool is in any way validated or relevant or real? I think that's really what the issue is for me, less privacy and more about information validity. Well, yeah, I guess my issue with chatbots has always been they are garbage, so I never use them um, unless it's a very, very, very cut and dried request that I have for something. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, yes, I think there's a much bigger question, which has to do with the the validity of any 
anything that's AI generated. And there's a bigger problem here because everybody says, oh, well, there's just a problem with hallucinations. And if we can eliminate that problem or throttle back the hallucinations, then we'll have AI that we can trust. But it turns out that the more you throttle back the hallucinations and the and the garbage and the made upness, the less useful AI becomes in terms of ideation and coming up with ideas. And so we're sort of in a catch-22. If you want to make AI completely reliable, it's also much less useful. It's not going to be as novel. It, yes, it turns out to be less effective That's in what you're trying to use it for. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a very interesting, almost a philosophical problem because right. if you think about it, all of art is about uh, hallucinations. It's telling <laughs> tales. It's making stuff up that's not true. Right. Our favorite favorite science fiction authors are are you know Neil Stevenson is hallucinations, but they're really interesting ones. Right. Yeah. I think there's potentially a startup market for a second layer of AI chatbot to check the validity of the sources used in whatever summary was spit out by that top layer chatbot you're using. So any, yeah, but any that's, a, that's an infinite recursion problem, because how do you trust the second layer to be <laughs> accurate and not hallucinating? <laughs> well, that's why there's another startup opportunity for layer three. That, that's how this works. <laughs> yeah, right. Turtles all the way down. <laughs> exactly. All right. That wraps up the news. Uh, uh, Jono, where can folks get more from you? Well, for this audience, I would love to have you come over and visit visit us over at Heavy Strategy, where Greg Farrow and I debate technology strategy for technology architects, strategists, and practitioners generally. Uh, we have a roaring good debate over there, and we'd love to hear from you. So go look us up on Heavy Strategy. Yeah, please do. You can find it at packetpushers.net. Check Heavy Strategy. Um, uh, Jonna and Greg have some great discussions. It's definitely worth your time listening. Uh, Jonna, thank you for being here. We're definitely going to have you back on Network Break as well. Uh, loved the insights and the conversation. Uh, stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes podcast with Palo Alto Networks. We're going to be talking about SD-WAN in the medical sector. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk with sponsor Palo Alto Networks about SD-WAN in the healthcare market. Now, all networks use the same technology and components, but each market segment has its own demands in the healthcare sector that includes stringent requirements around the privacy and security of patient information. And that's a particular challenge for smaller clinics and remote locations offering healthcare services outside of a central hospital or medical campus. Our guest today is Rajesh Kari, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Palo Alto Networks. We're going to get into more detail about how SD-WAN applies specifically to healthcare networks. Uh, Rajesh, welcome back to the podcast. Podcast. You know, typically when we talk about SD-WAN, we'll use an enterprise branch office or maybe a retail location as a typical example. Uh, how are healthcare WANs different? What kind of specific business needs do they have, uh, you know, from a typical branch or remote office? Usually talk about SD-WAN, it's mostly retail and financial, as you mentioned, but healthcare definitely is becoming a priority and more and more in the SD-WAN uh, world of things. The way the healthcare has operated has completely changed during the pandemic and we have all experienced it, right? People consulting their doctors, having their appointments done remotely through these cloud and SaaS apps. What we are seeing is that trend is continuing, but not majorly from their homes, but people do want to go into clinics or uh, some of the remote locations of healthcare and get access to their provider and still continue using some of these applications. So this is this idea that medical professionals are a limited resource, especially doctors and specialists. And a lot of treatment is 
not so much the time you need to spend seeing the doctor, but getting post-event treatment where you go into a clinic and a nurse takes a look or, a, you know, an assistant nurse will change your dressing or, you know, or do some follow-up work. And and to do that, you shouldn't have to travel hours to a hospital, which is a specialist resource. You really want to have lots of small clinics closer to the edge. Is that, is that the idea? That is correct. The resource limitations when it comes to healthcare definitely has a part to play. But then the preference of, you know, patients and end users, the way they access the healthcare has also transformed. The pop-up clinics, particularly, right, these remote locations, they are much more important now for the awareness um, it could be anything from, you know, a post-pandemic management of uh, how the vaccinations needs to be done or mm-hmm. awareness about a new medical conditions or whatever is happening in the healthcare industry, which could be of keen interest to the end users. So it could be a ton of um, both per- personal healthcare as well as the awareness that's driving these branches when it comes to healthcare. I'm thinking... Well, I mean, the, the probably the most useful use case is things like rural medicine, where you might only want to set up in a facility for a day. Maybe a particular medical field goes and sets up in a clinic for day, on Monday and then only comes around once a month or twice a month in that particular town or that region. That's not something that was historically possible. Usually the patient had to come to the facility, but now we're seeing the reverse where it's much more cost-effective to be able to do this on a temporary. But you're also talking about I can imagine a vaccination facility. You still need to track the patient and you know the dose that's given, and you know is the pay, all the bookings and everything. But there's medical data there, right? Absolutely. So remote locations is becoming much more important. At the same time, the need for that reliable connectivity, right? Just setting up a remote location is not enough. Now, as you mentioned. There needs to be the data that has to be uh, downloaded to these remote locations in terms of anything like browsers, patient data. Uh, But at the same time, when they run some test, they have to upload something to their uh, data centers or to the cloud. They need this connectivity, right? This reliable and secure connectivity. This patient, blood taken, you know, sent to this place, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, SD Wayne, how does this change that idea of a remote location? What's different to just, you know, putting in a router and buying an MPLS service from a from a telco like we used to? SD Wayne is coming up with much more comprehensive capabilities. Right in this case, Prisma SD Wayne, all our Ion, the twelve hundred appliances and the twelve hundred S appliances of the Ion family has a built-in five G. So, think about the advantage if someone wants to set up a remote location all they need to do is have access to this ion appliance and they can use any 5g carrier to directly connect download data upload information and still do it securely so that becomes an important use case for healthcare but at the same time drew i also want to bring the existing branch right as we know, the uh, the it could be an emergency location or it could be hospitals themselves. Their use of SaaS and cloud applications have also multiplied, right? So SD-WAN becomes much more critical in those distributed locations as well. Now they want the same kind of liable connectivity, but they also want this switchover um, based on performance, uh, based on SLAs. Yeah. This is this idea that you can use any bandwidth. So instead of getting a dedicated circuit from a telco and paying for it for 
every 24 hours a day, seven days a week at a 99.9% uptime, you could now mm-hmm. go and get a broadband and a 5G or three broadbands and a 5G as a backup or something like that and just load balance across, you know, what I call public WAN or the internet. Yeah. So the SD-WAN use case for their distributed location, their hospitals becomes much more critical as well. Because as I said, doctors who are there in the hospital are still connecting to some of the end users in their remote locations or the pop-up clinics, or even in some cases, their houses, right? So Mm -hmm. that bandwidth consumption has gone up and also the kind of applications used by healthcare has transformed so now SD-WAN, as you said, the bandwidth availability, the performance, the SLA, the reliability, everything becomes crucial. And I think it's important to note about SD-WAN that when we talk about SLAs, we're not talking about the typical SLA monitoring where you sort of look and then go back pro- you know, uh, a month later and say, well, we were off the SLA for this amount, so we'll credit you. You can do monitoring essentially in near real time to say, this link is not meeting the standard we want for this application, so we will switch that traffic in real time to this better performing link. That is right, yes. Mm. And even within the healthcare locations, remember there are different wings in a hospital or in an emergency center where there is um, life-threatening situations or you know something that needs to happen in real time right if it's an intensive care unit the actions needs to be taken immediately so the speed at which these data transfers has to happen is also very important. I think that's where SD-WAN can play a major role for healthcare. But at the same time, I also wanted to bring the IoT use case here. Right? Mm. As we know, healthcare has the maximum amount of IoT devices across every industry. So the reality is some of these IoT appliances are also legacy. They have been there in the healthcare for a while. Um, So it becomes much more important to get a sense of what are the IoT devices, what vulnerabilities they expose the healthcare community to, and Mm -hmm. also how to protect it, right, at all times. Now, healthcare is uniquely vulnerable to this because they often have these unusual medical devices that are slow to update and slow to change because they're covered by their own medical certifications. You can't just um, I, I, you can't just go and buy anything and put it into a medical environment. It has to be approved and certified and getting patches updated for these things is hard. It is unique to the medical environment that they are using more and more appliances like blood pressure cuffs and heart rate monitors are now connected to the network. Well, they might not be updated in you know in months. They don't get patched regularly. So you need security approaches to be able to address that. That's right. Yeah, so I'm curious how you tie this into SD-WAN because when you talk about IoT devices in this context, I'm thinking that's more of a you know wired network or more likely wireless network problem. What's SD-WAN's role here? So before we dive into what SD-WAN can do for healthcare IoT, it's very important to understand how things were managed in terms of IoT segments and devices. When there is a security gap, typically what this infrastructure team does is they will literally block that IoT segment or the entire IoT network within uh, a branch, right? Uh, That's not the way things operate in healthcare because you cannot take things offline and expect uh, real-time healthcare and then ensure that, you know, life-threatening conditions are handled properly. 
So the challenges, as you said, you know, the devices are legacy. Some of them are running outdated operating system. They also have some unknown vulnerabilities within them. What is the best way to get mm-hmm. visibility into the inventory and also secure them, regardless of who the vendor is, what operating system the devices are running on, or what unknown vulnerabilities they might be having within them, right? All done, making sure that it's it's not like a very usual way of just isolating and uh, removing IOTs from an active network. So that is where Prisma SD-BAN is differentiating. Because what we have done is we have created the intelligence within the Ion appliance to look into application traffic. Just using your ARP and DHCP traffic, we can identify the devices from where the traffic is originating from as IoT, and we just don't share the visibility. What we do is, because we are Prisma SD-BAN, we are tightly integrated with Prisma Access to deliver SASE, we send this information to our Prisma Access. Now, Prisma Access with the power of AML has a complete inventory of IoT devices. Now it can clearly tell you what device it is, what kind of threat it's vulnerable to, and then how to protect it. So from an end user, this is a very, very strong use cases. So this is more into almost like a security operations function. You're not only network connecting them, you're also saying, I'm watching the traffic and keeping it safe and secure. So it's not just SD-WAN, it's beyond that. Yeah, it's much more than that, right? That's where our unified SASE comes from. Uh, and as you know, Gartner recently recognized us as a one-day leader for a single vendor SASE. So this is a powerful way that healthcare can really leverage that SASE strategy to protect all their IoT appliances as well. So with our SASE solution, you get that reliable connectivity, the high availability, at the same time, that zero trust uh, security for everything, users, um, apps, as well as your IoT devices. Okay, so we've touched on some of the networking, some security. Um, you know, what about application performance? I know SD-WAN has a story there. Is there information? Is there visibility metrics, statistics I can get on actual application performance when I'm using SD-WAN and or SASE? Absolutely. Uh, SD-WAN analytics by itself provide visibility into SLA, application and network performance. And the Prisma SD-WAN, we provide much more than just the basic SLAs, right? We understand the application flows. We measure the SLAs based on these flows. So regardless of what application it is, whether it is an internet or SaaS or cloud or a data center, we will be able to provide you 100% visibility into how these applications are leveraging the WAN networks and also performing in real time. So now, talking about SASE, now, with SASE, you have this autonomous digital experience management, or ADEM. We can provide that end-to-end visibility. When I say end-to-end visibility, it's not just the branch to the applications on the data center or the cloud. I'm talking from end user. It could be a patient or it could be a doctor accessing a resource in terms of healthcare. Um, all the way to their Wi-Fi network, to their branch edge, and to the applications, but also everything in between, right? So for an 
infrastructure team, when something doesn't work, where in healthcare it's even more crucial, mm. they now have a complete visibility of where the problem occurred. They can see which exact point within a van network or a van carrier the issue is. So if I'm a clinician with, you know, a tablet or something going bedside to bedside to collect patient data and I'm launching a ticket saying the network is slow, that doesn't help anyone with ADEM. You can find out, is it, you know, an issue with uh, the wireless network? Uh, is it an issue even with an individual AP or is it something somewhere further along the line up to the actual maybe SaaS application that I'm hitting? That is correct. Yes. And uh, what we also do in addition to this, um, end user all the way to app visibility, we also kind of do predictive analysis. When I say predictive, based on the usage of bandwidth or the consistent uh, ex the user experience degradation, we can tell you that there is a possibility that there might be outages within a branch or across the branch in a given enterprise. And in healthcare, it becomes even more important, right? You don't want certain application degrading in one of the branches because of a band carrier problem and then spread across all the different branch sites. Instead, when we detect an issue with a band carrier, with the help of AIML, we can predict and tell you like the outages can be multiplied. It can grow exponentially. So you need to act now in order to prevent so-and-so uh, impact. So that's very powerful because you are not only addressing the problem early on, you also know what to prioritize. Most of the time, the infrastructure team struggle with prioritizing these trouble, I mean, the issues, right? Sure. Yep. They are like, I have 10 issues. One is with performance. One is with end user connectivity. One is with the van carrier itself. Which do I prioritize? Now with this predictive analysis, they can clearly see which is going to cause the major impact. They can prioritize it, address it, and then go from that order. And there's a very important point here, and that's all visual. So part of the SD-WAN portfolio is this visibility and monitoring. You can see the traffic. It's all charted as part of the Prisma controller platform. So you might think to yourself, if you're somebody who's come from a different environment, that's all built in. You don't, the application erection, the inspection, knowing what the footprint is, you can say things on a, on a Prisma SD-WAN like access Microsoft Office 365. And that's one rule. You don't have to work it out, for example. That's right. We don't provide observability like any mix and match solutions offer, right? The infrastructure uh, team doesn't have to look into five different consoles and understand the analytics and correlate it to root cause analyze one single problem. But instead, within the same centralized management that is offered with Prisma SASE, you can see this end-to-end -end visibility. It includes your security enforcement, your threat landscape, your networking policies, your application network performance, as well as the end user experience that we just talked about. So everything under one single console makes a huge difference because exactly pinpointing that parent issue becomes very critical, particularly for an industry like healthcare. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Rajesh, if folks want to find out more about uh, SD-WAN or SASE from Palo Alto Networks, where should they go? They can get all this information and much more by accessing paloaltonetworks.com slash SASE. And if 
people want to really uh, experience SASE in real time, get their hands on on how the solution works. We also run an ultimate test drive that's called our UTD that can be again found under the same website. All right, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy. That's S-A-S-E. Uh, thank you, Rajesh, for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. The Packet Pushers Network is home to a slate of technical podcasts on networking, on Wi-Fi, the cloud, IT strategy, and more. You can listen to every episode for free at packetpushers.net or via your favorite podcatcher. You can also hear us on Spotify. And if you would, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.